Thanks for tuning in into Zen Compass, and I'm your host, Julio Rivera. On this podcast, we sit down with meditation teachers and conscious creators to hear their journey and how their meditation practice supports them. On the second episode, we sit down with Catherine McHugh, who's been meditating for over three decades and teaching for over 16 years. Some of my favorites from this discussion was hearing what it was like to take one of John Kabat-Zinn's first MBSR courses and her experience with her first silent meditation retreat. There are a lot of goodies in this discussion on the right perspective to have before we sit. So I hope you enjoy. Thanks, Catherine, for joining today. I'm excited to have you on the podcast. And it's a pleasure to be with you, Julio, and I'm really looking forward to it. Great. So I wanted to start off with the beginning and how you first got into meditation. Terrific. Well, in the 80s, I was in college and I started to suffer from anxiety. And then I began having panic attacks. I was supposed to go to Oxford for my junior year abroad, and I couldn't get on the plane. Months later, I found that I couldn't get over bridges, and we used to go to Cape Cod in the summers, so mm -hmm. that became challenging. <laughs> and then I couldn't get into elevators, so it started to grow. I was telling a friend, how am I going to live my life like this? I'm only, you know, 23, 24 years old. And they said, oh, you know, there's this guy in Worcester who's starting this stress reduction program. His name is John Kabat-Zinn. Mm. You should check it out. So, of course, I did. I was desperate. And um, I found in this eight-week class, not only that I wasn't alone, which was really helpful because you start to feel like, wow, I'm so alone. No one else feels like this but me. But I realized, no, there's a lot of people out there suffering for different reasons. But within those eight weeks, the anxiety started to lessen. Mm. And over the years, as I continued to practice and then continued to uh, go on retreats and those types of things, I noticed I haven't had an anxiety and panic disorder for a few decades now. And yet it's been my distinct pleasure and honor to help people that are continuing to be in the throes of things like anxiety, like depression, like chronic pain. Mm. It's just part of what I do. Mm. But that's the beginning of the story. Great. And so for the listeners who don't know John Kabat-Zinn, uh, who is a, a reputable and, and kind of household name in the mindfulness space, uh, could you tell a little bit about uh, John Kabat-Zinn and, and that eight-week class that you took? Yeah, absolutely. So John Kabat-Zinn started this class, which is known as MBSR, mm -hmm. Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, in 1979 uh, at UMass Medical School. He is considered to be really the founder or father of American mindfulness right. and brought it out to the forefront and is part of the reason why it's become mainstream. And essentially, it helps to teach uh, in systematic ways using practices that are practical in nature, things like a practice called body scan, which is really great if you have trouble falling asleep, becoming aware of your breathing. And also it has a portion that where you're really building community, mm. uh, where you get to know the 26 or 28 people that are in your group. Usually it's about 25 to 30 people. And it was really a, a life-changing experience for me. And now being able to teach that to corporations and other people has been an amazing journey. 
I mean, it must have been incredible to be one of the first classes of MBSR with John Kabat-Zinn. I mean, I've seen him speak, actually. I went to a conference, a Wisdom 2.0, oh, and yeah. they had it here in New York City. Um, with And, and Anderson uh, Cooper co-hosted it. But uh, just hearing him talk, I mean, he could articulate mindfulness, uh, the concept of it so, so well. I mean... How would you define mindfulness? Because I think it's one of those words that you hear, yeah. but it's really hard to uh, make it concrete. Mindfulness is the practice of paying attention in the present moment, in a particular way, and non-judgmentally. Mm, you said that so well. Wow. <laughs> but can I unpack it a little? Yeah, please continue. Yeah. Okay. So the practice of paying attention in a particular way, the particular way is non-judgmentally mm. and with a sense of curiosity, almost like you're a scientist in your own particular experience. So instead of us thinking that something is unique or even boring, like eating, taking whatever it is you're eating and actually exploring it with your senses, like you've never eaten it before. Mm. What does this smell like? What does this taste like? What does it even sound like? Mm. And so bringing this fresh approach to each moment in the moment and this on purpose quality, this sense of intentionality. And we bring the sense of being non-judgmental to ourselves, to the experience, because really what are we doing all day long? We're liking and we're not liking. We want more of this and less of that. And the, the constant ping-pong episodic ways in which the brain produces thoughts and feelings, and it's, it's a constant moving, moving, moving part. They, you know, the old uh, Tibetan monks call it monkey mind. Right. You know, yeah. no, monkey, mind. No monkey mind. And so this mindfulness allows us to slow that down and get underneath the choppy waves of the mind to a little bit of a quieter, clearer, open sense of what's here. So in order to continue to practice mindfulness, it's always in the present moment because that's really all we have. Right. But it's opening up, releasing judgment, and seeing through almost like the eyes of a child what's here. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that is such a critical piece of it, this non-judgmental approach to it. Sometimes, though, before I, I even meditate myself, I, I try to uh, encourage myself to kind of view view uh, the thoughts and the emotions in that way. I mean, how would you recommend new meditators to have this have this outlook on, on, on the practice itself? In terms of the non-judgmental yes, aspect yep, of yeah, it? Yeah. I think we need to understand and be gentle with ourselves that when we begin meditation, the first thing we begin to notice right away is, wow, it's active in there. <laughs> I didn't realize how busy my mind is. I mean, I did, but wow, mm. this is really busy. But not thinking that that means I can't meditate because a lot of new meditators, when they have this experience, quote unquote, that feels unpleasant. And remember, we're not judging. So allowing that to just be there and giving ourselves a lot of room, like the word spaciousness, when to, for not only new meditators, but if you've been doing it 20 years, you still want that sense of spaciousness to know that it's okay. Just experiment. We're exploring. We can go back and forth. It's okay. 
that's a great outlook on how we can produce this non-judgmental perspective before we sit down into the meditation practice, mm -hmm. just understanding uh, that we are human and allowing for that spaciousness. So thank you for answering that. I wanted to kind of rewind and go back to maybe your earlier days of when anxiety was very present and mm -hmm. when you were growing your practice. Um, one of the things that I even do find with myself for when anxiety is very prevalent um, is that it does kind of, like you said, paralyze myself. So can you dig a little deeper into that? Like, I, I guess, you know, what were the specific, what were you think were the causes of your anxiety? Well, it's an interesting question, and I think the answer is probably multivalent. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. I, I think it, a lot of it for my family of origin, mm -hmm. there definitely is a strong genetic component for it. Um, I think uh, personality-wise, uh, I had uh, was driven and, and still have a slight bit of that, but not so much anymore. Mm -hmm. But I think driven and... Even then, the culture was such that, you know, it was push, push, do more, you know, more exams, more activities. Mm. So I think that puts us in this constant state um, of go, 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 which at some point starts to begin to uh, to create this anxiety. And in a way, uh, it starts the ball rolling, if you will, so that it becomes easier and easier to have symptoms of the anxiety because you're living at such a heightened mode and one of the gifts um, for me of the anxiety is not just the connecting of suffering with other people but for me it's now if I get even a twinge of that even a twinge I, I'm so alert to the feeling in the body I don't judge it I say oh I think I might need to take something off the calendar today mm. or what can I do as an act of self-care? Or, oh, I think I need 60 minutes to close my eyes right now. 60 minutes, 40 minutes. So for me, I might take a longer practice. But even on a very busy day where I'm going from one meeting to the other, I have had a practice for many years of arriving to the meeting with even two to three minutes of meditation before I get out of the car. So the anxiety started... Yes, it's curious and interesting, I guess, from my perspective, to know what might have caused it. But I think, for me, the most important answer is what to do about it. Right. And so I also want to add one piece where mindfulness, and particularly uh, my eight-week class at that young age, helped me to do, was I kept thinking, alarm, alarm, there's something wrong with me. And instead... What mindfulness does is it invites us as best we can, because sometimes I'm not advocating that when a, a feeling is so unpleasant, you should sit there and stare at it. I'm, mm. I'm definitely not advocating <laughs> that. Sometimes the best thing to do is go for a walk right. and move the body. But sometimes we can get curious about, oh, heart is the heart's racing. Huh, let's take the pulse. How fast is it going? Or this, again, this sense of, like, I'm a scientist checking this out. Well, what does anxiety feel like for me? Tightness in my head or maybe tightness in my chest. What is that? And then it, it's like almost as if you're removing your immediate experience of it and you're watching it. You know that? If you've ever been in front of a waterfall or behind a waterfall, Julio? Have you mm. ever had that experience? I've been in front of one. In yeah. front, but if you, if you walk around behind, there's usually sometimes a place to stand. Yeah. And you can 
be so close to the waterfall that you can almost smell the water. You definitely feel the coolness and maybe a few drops are hitting your yeah. skin, but you're not in it. Mm. I feel like mindfulness is like that. So our whatever activity or whatever experience that we're having as people, good, bad, and different, <laughs> we're standing behind the waterfall watching it, but not getting overly involved. I love that analogy. Yeah, yeah. That is such a powerful analogy. Yeah, behind the waterfall. When did you decide that you wanted to become a teacher? Well, there's a lot. I could ramble about that one for a little while, but, <laughs> but I will save your dear listeners um, <laughs> from that. Um, basically, it was like most people's journeys, um, crooked. The path mm. was crooked, not straight. And what I did was I thought that, that this revelation or this feeling of transformation that I had um, had a, a strongly spiritual component. And by the way, I, I still do, uh, but if, I think of it in a different way. And I was Catholic at the time, raised in a devout Irish Catholic Boston family and liberal kind of Catholicism. And as the years went on, I would be teaching kind of uh, women and teen retreats for the Catholic Church and doing still my meditation practice and sometimes using more sacred language uh, and yet, as the years went by, I kind of fell away from uh, a staunchly religious outlook, but still felt as if this leading retreats was something that I not only loved doing, but I saw such a benefit from, even if it was a day retreat or a weekend retreat, the sense of authenticity and vulnerability and openness and healing that was arising during these retreats was so profound to me. So I went to um, theology school at Andover Newton, which is now part of the Yale Divinity School down in New Haven, and got a degree in uh, world religions. In particular, I was studying world contemplative practices. How does the world, how do different faiths practice prayer and meditation? And when I graduated, the uh, advisor said, so what is it you want to do with this? What are you going to do with this? Mm. And I said, I'm going to teach practical spirituality. And she said, how is that going to work? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and it wasn't much later that a friend said, you know, maybe you should apply for an internship at the Center for Mindfulness as a, you know, as an intern there. So I did. And I was one of the very few. Actually, I was the only one who had a religious background. They were mostly uh, social works, uh, social workers, psychologists, wonderful people from around the world that I got to internship with and learned so much from the people that were in there, um, the bravery of each and every person for showing up and trying meditation. And, <laughs> and it's amazing to me. So that's kind of how. And then I guess I just had a knack for being able to articulate what it was we were about. And I feel really, really comfortable um, with pretty much, I've never met a person who I didn't find some sort of connection with, I think. So I've just been lucky that way. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So you mentioned that you've been on several retreats. Mm -hmm. um, so do you mind describing uh, what a meditation retreat looks like? And then also, uh, what was your first experience like? <laughs> <laughs> Great. So first I want to just differentiate between you can go on retreats that are guided. I know Kripalu out in Western Massachusetts has a series that are really wonderful of different retreats. And 
there are also silent retreats, which is what we're going to be talking about. Right. And the silent retreats, which I have gone on, mostly at the IMS Center, that's in Barrie, Massachusetts, uh, was started by Sharon Salzberg Sharon and yep. uh, Joseph Goldstein. Mm. But the one I'm going to share with you today is my <laughs> very first one, because I think listeners will get a kick out of this. Yeah, please. It was at the Spirit Rock Center, which is started by Jack Cornfield up in Northern California. And I had never been on anything longer than a weekend silent retreat. And this was uh, seven days. And the first day, once you settle in, it's kind of exciting. But by the end of the day, you know, it's silent eating with each other. Uh, you know, every single moment you spend 45 minutes from 530 in the morning till about 10 o'clock at night. 45 minutes sitting and meditating, and then 45 minutes walking, and then 45 minutes sitting, and 45 minutes walking. It can be indoors or outdoors. Well, after the first two days, I started to say to myself, what did I get myself into? <laughs> I am going crazy. <laughs> I'm going to have to get off the campus. I'm gonna, I, I can't handle this. Because there was just no sense of communication. It was frustrating for me not to right. be able to speak. You don't, you don't bring your phones, not even books, because they want you to be with your experience, wow. present moment, no distractions. So the funny thing was, is the mind likes to distract. So one of the, the third day in, they usually only have tea, but they had a special cook there taking over for the other regular cook, and he likes coffee. So he would bring this big canteen of Pete's coffee, but once it was gone, that was it. Mm. But you have to wait in line and line up in a kind of prayerful way, if you will, to get your food. Right. I'm four people behind, and everybody's choosing the coffee, and I'm thinking, all I want is a cup of coffee. <laughs> There's nothing else I want. Please, oh, universe, send me this cup of coffee. <laughs> and as the person in front, I can hear that sound, you know, when the coffee oh, urn is so almost as a right. gurgling. Yeah. No coffee for me. But in the moment of mindfulness, three days in, I thought, look, the craving that we all have, if I could just have that cup of coffee, that's all I want. The negotiation in the mind, and then the not getting it, and being so upset about the person in front of you, and they took too much coffee, and you know, the stories, right? Mm -hmm. But in the moment, because I was so present, I watched it all with kind of a sense of amusement. I said, whoa. Look at you. You're so upset about the coffee and the person in front of you. And then <laughs> this is ruining your day. You know? So that was, and I, I thought, wow, that's amazing. I never would have really noticed the kind of narrative, their constant running, the judgments we're not even conscious of. Makes us really conscious. And then as the retreat, after day three, and by the way, I've done several. So the first three days are always a little tricky. Yeah. Fourth day in and you're in that zone. You know, it's four, fourth or fifth day. It's like 6 a.m. And Northern California can be cool in the morning. You know, it might have been 40 degrees. I'm wearing this crazy coat with this hood on it. And I decided to take my breakfast and sit on this picnic bench. And the sun was coming up. And there was dew on everything. And I look up. And in this tree is a spider's web with the spider in it. And I raised my hand just to see the sunlight through my hand. And I see my veins and the hand. And I, they, I can see them outlining just against the cobweb, not touching. Mm. And the sense 
the incredible sense. It was almost like I had a psychological drug, you know, LSD or something. (laughs) I felt this incredible connection with everything. And it felt like such a truth, such a real truth. It was a moment of, I guess you'd say, awakening. It was a moment of awakening to the way things really are. But I needed to almost clear away the the constant chatter of the mind Mm. to arrive there. But it always, but it's so funny, no matter how many times I do a retreat, the first three days I always say, why am I here again? (laughs) (laughs) But it was just an amazing moment of just the the nature and the spider and the sunlight and the connection and the feeling of being exactly where you're supposed to be. It's pretty cool. Wow, you've completely sold me on a silent meditation (laughs) retreat. I've yet to go, but it's definitely on the plan for uh, 2018. Awesome, that's terrific. So you've been teaching for how many years at this point? I have been teaching for 16 years. Wow. So you have a, a breadth of experience and have, uh, I'm sure, interfaced with uh, many different types of uh, meditators at different points in their practice. Um, is there any things or any common theme or that one common theme that you see that kind of um, practitioners are coming to you with as far as a, a question or a challenge? You know, like the what the top five questions as an early meditator kind of thing, or yeah, or, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I mentioned the busy mind. Mm. I bet uh, a lot of people come and say, "I really love doing meditation, and I always feel better when I do it." But how do I fit it in my schedule? I just, you know, I was trying to do it early in the morning, and it keeps making me fall asleep. So oftentimes, when I hear that question, I I say, you know, all of us are different. And like anything else, we have to prioritize something. And if we know that we're literally changing our brain, I think that's the other thing I like to talk to uh, a little bit with new uh, beginning meditators. Neuroscientists are discovering all kinds of things about how plastic the brain is. We used to think it was kind of set in stone and then deteriorating. But instead we find that at any age and at any moment, we can be changing the brain in positive ways and setting up new neural pathways. The way in which we do that, though, just like training the muscles to grow, if we want to get a big bicep, we have to go to the gym and we have to pretty much consistently lift weights. When we stop doing it, what happens? The muscle goes down. Mm-hmm. The same is true with the brain and meditation. The more we do it, the easier it becomes. Easier is a kind of a loose way of saying it, <laughs> but I think you have an easier time. It's more of a habit. So the question is, how do we establish the habit? We find cues that help us. We find a time that works for us. And again, life is, uh, one, is one thing, and it is, that's uncertain sometimes or most times. It, if it's mostly mornings, try the morning. If it's at right before bedtime, if, you, if that's a good time for you, see if that works. You might be able to carve a piece of time out during your lunch hour. The other thing that can be quite helpful is to set up a space in your home, even if it's a tiny area of your bedroom and you have a little apartment that invites you there. Maybe a candle, maybe a, you know, a comfortable throw, something that says, oh, this is my time, which it really is. And I think that's one. And the other early question is people say, hey, I started meditating and I'm always falling asleep. What can I do? Mm. And I say to them, look, we are a sleep-deprived culture. Oh, yeah, indeed. Right? Yeah. Everybody is so tired all the time. <laughs> so if at the first couple weeks, every single time you sit down to meditate, you fall asleep, your body needs it. But if it's been about a month and every single time you go, <laughs> then you might want to 
try sitting up during meditation, even keeping your eyes open and working with that because even though sleep is great, you're not conscious, so it's really not the you know meditation. <laughs> it's not meditation. Uh, so I, I would say that those are, are a couple of the questions. You know, how do I get a habit started? What happens if I fall asleep? We talked a little bit about the busy mind, which is just normal, and it will finally give up. Uh, there's an old story that you may have heard, Julio. I think uh, I read it. I think it was probably Jack Cornfield who shared it. Early meditation is like training the puppy. Have you heard this one? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think I have. All right. So yeah. when you're training a puppy, you say, sit, stay. Well, what does the puppy do? It gets up and goes away because <laughs> it's a puppy. It's not going to sit and stay. Right. You don't whack the puppy and say bad puppy. You know, it's just a puppy. You just put it back down right. again and again. You put the puppy down on its butt and eventually <laughs> you say, sit, stay. And they say, the puppy looks up at you and says, oh, that's what you want. Yeah. The same is true of our brain. You say, I want you to pay attention to the breath or I want you to pay attention to sound, whatever it is. And the brain is just like the puppy. It's like, no way. I'm going away. I'd rather talk, think about the vacation I'm going to have in two years or about a conversation last week. So you don't beat your brain up, which we tend to do, right? We mm. often do. We say, I can't do this. I'm so, you know, whatever, name the word. Instead, what we do is we just gently keep bringing it back, just like the puppy. And eventually your brain goes, oh, he wants me to stay. <laughs> and he does. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like training the puppy. Yeah. So, so that's kind of a helpful way to, a metaphor to use. No, yeah, I like that. Um, I think a critical part of that process is giving yourself a treat for sitting down so that positive yeah. reinforcement is there yeah um for those who don't know who jack cornfield is because i just yeah. want to make sure that you know yeah so he's another um he he's been practicing and came to a back he was he's an american mm. um and he came to he was a he became a monk in um tibet but then he came back he went to harvard uh, he got a PhD in psychology. He's a Buddhist psychologist who actually founded the Spirit Rock Center, which is a meditation center of some note in Northern California right. that offers all kinds of teaching and learning opportunities in the meditative world. Just an amazing, amazing place. And he wrote this book, which I cannot recommend more highly to your listeners, called A Path with Heart. A Path with Heart. A okay. Path with Heart. You've read the book? Oh, many, many times it's highlighted. Oh, there's just so many wonderful things in it. Yeah. So what is on the roadmap for you for 2018 as a teacher? Well, in addition to working with you, which we can yes. talk about. Yeah. Uh, the other th two things that are new for me. So uh, my primary focus over the last 15 years or so has been um, universities uh, and corporations. Mm -hmm. that those have been most of my clients across the country particularly in new england but across the country who are looking at stress reduction leadership innovation creativity use through the lens of mindfulness and how that can enhance these these capabilities that we all have and sometimes it would you know sometimes it would be a small group sometimes it would be a large group but this is what's interesting for next year i'm going to be working with first responders so I'm going to be training the police officers down in Miami-Dade County, my mindfulness training, <laughs> which is really, really interesting. And they, by the way, I'm not the first there. Um, well, in England and Canada, most of their police officers are trained. But 
in Oregon, uh, a gentleman started a program where all of the Portland, Oregon officers were trained, and they found amazing results, like 95%, you know, everybody was a giving it the high five, not only the officers, but their families, um, the people in the community could see a difference. Right. And so they had a summit, the inaugural summit for mindful policing down in Cal Southern California last year. So I'll be doing that with a series of different police stations and officers. So that's really cool. Wow. And the other thing that's also another set of first responders is I'm going to be working with uh, student teachers at universities that are in nursing tr nurses training because nurses are also first responders. They're the people in the ER. They're the first people that you see sometimes when you're coming into the doctor's office. And particularly in the hospital setting, nurses are under a tremendous amount of stress and they're overworked, many of them. So being able to give them these tools to not only calm themselves, but to be really, really present to whoever's in front of them and be, I think for both police officers and nurses, this sense of being able to see what's there in a clearer, calmer way. And instead of us getting reactive, which many of us would in a situation of crisis, we can learn to respond and give ourselves just that nanosecond and what shows up when we don't react, but we take a moment, just a moment, to choose what our response is going to be, how will that impact what's going to happen? Mm. And we don't know yet. Right. But it's, but it's exciting and that's, hopeful. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible work that you're doing. I think I love to see that uh, mindfulness and meditation is being applied to a lot of different areas where stress, uh, trauma, PTSD. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just saw that the National Geographic uh, came out with an app specifically targeted towards veterans, yeah. um, which I think is so critical and, and needed in, in today's time. So uh, thank you for the work that uh, yeah. you're doing and, and you're going to be doing in 2018. Yeah, yeah thank you. Oh, thank yeah, you. Of course. Um, and so additionally, you're, you're coming on to the Zen Compass app, which I'm really excited for. Um, it is... Uh, November of 2017, uh, the 17th, and we're launching a new version uh, towards the end of the month. And Catherine, you'll be joining us as one of the uh, launching teachers for this version, which I'm extremely excited for. So. Me too. I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> Serving and being part of the community of Zen Compass. Thank you. Really great. So where do people find out about you? So the, the easiest way is uh, my company is called Awaken Wellness Resources, okay. uh, Mindfulness and Resiliency Training. But if you just go to www.awakenwellnessresources, you can see my shiny face <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and read a little bit about what I do and what I offer. But I think the biggest um, thing I'd like to share is that yeah, please. is that. I see every single person in a situation as unique and as universal at the same time. So that all of us share similar experiences, but whether I'm working with an individual or I'm working with a big corporation or university, I'm looking really right at them again with this beginner's mind. So I, I bring to each moment, no matter how long I've been practicing, a sense of newness and uh, excitement and uh, a sense that there are so many available options for each and every one of us, and I want to help uh, people find that for themselves. So mm. I like to be able to share in that journey. 
Great. Well, yeah. thank you, Catherine, so much for your time. I really yeah. enjoyed this conversation. Me too. It's a joy. I'm so looking forward to being with you, Julio. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Bye. Before this episode ends, I have one ask. If you really enjoyed this conversation or didn't like it, if you could leave a review on the iTunes store, that would be grateful. One, it helps us to understand how we can continue to bring value within these discussions. And then also, it helps people find and discover this podcast to help them with their meditation practice. Thank you so much.